You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning. (laughs) My name is Alice. I'm a member here at New City, and I'm going to be reading our sermon text this morning, which comes from Ecclesiastes 4. We're going to be reading the whole chapter, 16 verses, so I'll give you a moment to turn there. And then if you would, would you join me with standing in reverence for God's word? Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all. Welcome. Excited to get into this text with you. Hope you're doing well this morning. Hope you've had a good week. Um, Ecclesiastes has been uh, eating my lunch personally, so I'm curious. I'm hopeful that it's been um, a tool that the Lord has been using in your life. Um, the text this week, as you just heard, hopefully you caught, um, takes us to the subject of relationships, um, which inevitably a text like this should cause us um, to evaluate the state of our relationships. What is the state of friendship in America? Um, It's not great, okay? I will be, to put it mildly, right? Friendship is less of a cultural held value than it probably ever has been, at least in modern society. Even closer to home, perhaps, what what is the state of relationships in Champaign-Urbana? 
Um, I was made aware of this this week. Um, sometimes uh, late at night after the kids go to bed, I'll go drive Uber for like an hour just for some extra money. We're fine, okay? Nobody panic. Everything's good. Um, but it's a good way to meet people and to hear about what's going on in people's lives. And so this week I gave a guy a ride and uh, he was telling me about his season here in Champaign and I asked him what the lesson was that he learned in the season. And it was heartbreaking. He said, don't trust anybody. That's what he learned from life. What a sad and hard place. Maybe even closer to home than America or in Champaign-Urbana, what is the state of friendship in our church? At the beginning of planting, I had a seminary mentor pray over me, and it's always stuck with me. One of the things that he prayed is that we would measure the health of our church by the quality of our relationships. And that's much harder, right? It's much harder than just, hey, there's a lot of people in the room. It's, are these people committing to life together? Is there growth in depth, in compassion and closeness to one another? We got to ask these questions about our lives, right? What are the state? What is the state of our relationships? You see, friendship is a lot of things, but at its very heart, if you boil down friendship to what it truly is, what you find is companionship. Companionship. Companionship biblically defined from this text, I believe, is, is simply this. A holy, sincere commitment to connection. That's what companionship is, right? You can be a companion to someone even if you don't know them very well, right? Because it's a commitment to connection, to closeness, to being with another person. There's also an element of holiness, right? We, we, as a culture, go looking for companionship, right? What is the old country song? Looking for love in all the wrong places. St. Augustine famously said, every man who stands and knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. We long for connection. We long for companionship. What is it truly and biblically? It's again, that holy, sincere commitment to connection. See, there's a holy longing within each of you this morning, whether you are a Christian or not, for companionship. Here's why you have the longing. You were made for it. In the Garden of Eden, when God created the world, he made everything beautiful and perfect and right. And the man was given dominion over the garden. And what was the first thing that God said wasn't good in a very good world? That he was alone. We are hardwired for companionship, first with God and then with one another. But here's the problem. When we think of companionship, typically we think of it in one of three ways. One, we either think of it as optional, right? Especially in a transient city like ours, it's like, I'm here for two years to get a master's degree. I don't need any companionship. I'm just gonna put my head down and do my work. We think of it as an option or, or maybe we think of it as contractual, right? If you do this, I'll do that. But if it stops being mutually beneficial, guess what? Deals off, no more companionship. Think of how heartbreaking it would be if you went to a wedding this next weekend and, uh, and the bride and groom were standing in front of the room and they started to exchange vows. And what you heard was that, I promise to love and cherish you 
as long as you wash the dishes. And I take you forever and ever if you make enough money. Wouldn't it be heartbreaking? Now, we don't always view marriage like that. Sometimes we do. But think of how contractual some of our other relationships are. If you are no longer adding benefit to my life, why would I be a companion to you? And the third way we tend to think of companionship is not that it's optional or it's contractual, but we fear it. We fear it. I mean, don't we? It's a strange fear, to be fair, right? You, you want it, but then when you get right up to the edge of it, you go, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. To know another person and to be known by them, it's a scary thing. And in all of this, Jesus stands up and he calls himself, of all the things he could call himself, right? He calls himself friend of sinners. A friend. You were made for a friend and the Lord Jesus <laughs> drew near to the deepest longing of your heart and has been a friend to us. This is really good news. Oh, to be allergic to what we are made for is one of the greatest problems of the human existence. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. But here's what the text is going to teach us, okay? Companionship, that connection, that holy, sincere connection is essential to a wise life under the sun. It's essential, meaning it's not optional. To connect is to be human in a very real sense. And then to a wise life. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the skill of living well. This should tell us something. Real companionship, real relationships take work. Right? If you're going to live well in this world, it's going to take some work. It's going to take some work. And to living wise under the sun, right? Remember, we are in a world covered in brokenness. And so we're going to see from this text, one, um, how does Solomon wrestle with the reality of companionship and relationships? But then two, we're going to see how does Jesus invade life under the sun and reframe our understanding of companionship? Make sense? Kind of where we're going today? Okay, four points. Let me take a drink and then we'll get rolling. Point number one. The vanity of life without compassion or companionship, excuse me. Read again in verse one with me. It says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the, so on the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Okay, let's think about this for a, just a moment here. Zoom back and remember one of the core words or concepts in the book of Ecclesiastes here is the word hevel. 
And Hevel, if you remember what it means, it's like a mist, right? Um, Like a vapor. And Solomon, again and again, he says, that's what life is like under the sun. It is like a mist or a vapor. If you observe it, right, I can see a little bit of steam rolling off of my coffee still. Is that steam real? Of course it's real. But what happens when I try to grab onto it? It disappears, right? And that's what Solomon says about life. He says it's this paradox that it's, it can be beautiful and good, but it's also just, it's just hard to get a hold of. And so going into chapter four right here, we need to remember that that's what's running in the back of his mind. He's looking at how meaningless it is, whether you have power or you don't have power, whether you are oppressing um, or you are oppressed, right? Without a comforter, goodness, his estimation is bleak. The teacher is honest about life in these verses Oppression and oppressors exist in the world. There's brokenness in relationships, is there not? That is the definition of relationships gone wrong. Oppression and oppressors. There's no longer companionship, togetherness, shoulder-to-shoulder work like there was in the Garden of Eden. And then he goes a layer deeper. And he says of both of these groups, right, the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. And then he says of the oppressors, there was no one to comfort them. Essentially right here, he is saying without a comforter, without a companion, someone who is connected to you, with you, standing by your side, whether you have all the power or you have none of the power, look how bleak it gets. It's better to not be alive. Sheesh. Like Solomon, like, I wish he was here. We, he needs a hug, doesn't he? Like, come here, buddy. It's not that bad, is it? Of course, he's not in a good place right here as he's writing these words, but there's something deep in here. He's speaking from a, a dark and dramatic place, certainly. As many of us know what it's like to do, right? To be dark and dramatic in a moment of difficulty. But he identifies something important. Here it is. I don't want you to miss this. A life without companionship is no life at all. A life without companionship is no life at all. Think about it for a moment. What is the real joy of accomplishment? Is it really that you got the trophy or the promotion or the thing? No, no, no. The deep joy is that you get to celebrate it with somebody else, right? Like, man, isn't that the best? When you do something that's hard or difficult and your friends celebrate with you? Or even more great, isn't it awesome when you see your friends, these companions that you love who are next to your side, you watch them begin to succeed or follow Jesus? Isn't it fun to cheer your friends on? This is companionship, at least in part. Think about from the, the other end of the spectrum. If, if joy of accomplishment is better over here, think about the sorrow of loss. What makes the sorrow of loss bearable? A friend. And in a moment like that, when you're hurting, when you're suffering, when you've lost something that matters, 
So often it's not that your friends know what to say, it's that they're there, is it not? A life without companionship is no life at all. And friends, Solomon is teaching us right here that this, this companionship, this comforting, this connection, this is not a part of life. It is life. And two things I want you to consider here. What, what does this mean for us in life under the sun? Number one, when you treat companionship as optional, you are denying your very humanity. If you believe in your heart of hearts that you don't need nobody, there's a real part of you of how God has wired and made you that you are setting aside and denying. And this morning, I'm just asking you from God's word not to do it. What would it mean if you embraced friendship for the first time? See, there's this other side of the coin there. There are those of us, right, who are denying companionship and, and comforting. We're not really interested in it. But then there are others of us in the room who long for it and can't seem to get it. Isn't that a horrifying feeling when you just go, oh my gosh, am I alone? Is there nobody that cares or sees? Does anybody want me, like desire me, and not just in a romantic way, that's not what I mean, but, but does somebody, does my mind cross anybody else's mind? And friend, can I just tell you that the heartbreak of that place is real heartbreak, because it's not what it should be. See, our lack of companionship is a brokenness that we inherit from the fall. This is not God's good design living out when we are treating it as optional or we're longing for it and we can't seem to get it or we are, we are blocked in companionship for one reason or another. This is not God's way. It is not his design. But can I give you good news this morning, friends? Friendship with Jesus abounds everywhere there is lack. Do you long for a friend and are without a friend? Guess what? You have a Lord. If you are in Christ this morning, you have a Lord. We just sang it a minute ago. I've got a friend who's closer than a brother. Who's with me. How might it change your life if you believe that this morning? You're like, oh, and all these feelings, these pangs of loneliness that crash against my heart like the relentless tides of the ocean. That right there in the wake stands Christ. He stands with you and he stands for you. And if you stand resisting companionship, resisting connections with other out of fear or insecurity or doubt or selfishness, whatever reason, the Lord Jesus, he, uh, he's really good at what he does. I want you to picture sitting in a counselor's office with Jesus right now. What does he say to you when you are resisting relationships? Right, he does what a good counselor does. He asks questions. He reveals what's going on in your heart. And then he tells you the truth. This isn't the way. It's not the way. 
Friend, whatever is keeping you from companionship is your enemy. It is not God's good design. There is a vanity, a meaninglessness, an enigma to life without companionship. You were designed for companionship. This is the truth. But it's not so easy, is it? Some of you are in the room, you're going like, yeah, absolutely. Yes and amen, companionship. Let's go. It's kind of hard, isn't it? Have you tried it? (laughs) Have you really tried it, right? I'm not getting as many amens as I thought there would be on this. Is it just me? Okay. It's hard. And Solomon identifies for us part of the reason why it's difficult. And this is what we see in point number two, the enemies of companionship. Look at verse four. It says, then... I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil with a striving after the wind. Okay, let's stop there for for just a minute. Solomon, as he's reflecting on relationships, as he's thinking about companionships, notice he starts to move us toward one of the main domains of life under the sun, to the workplace. Did you notice that in verse four? All the toil, all the skill, right? The things that you have to use to make it in the world. He's starting to talk about work, provision. This is what he's talking about right here. So for you, think about um, relationships in the office, right? Relationships at home, with your roommates or your family, relationships with um, your classmates, those you rub shoulders with on a regular basis. What are the state of your relationships in the place where you're putting your hand to work? That's what Solomon wants us to think about right here. And he is about to answer the question for us, why can't we get this? Like if it's as simple as knowing that we should have companions, then we would all be crushing it, wouldn't we? But that's not reality. Why can't we get a hold of this? And the text seems to suggest a few things right here. In verse four, it says, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from, look at this, man's envy of his neighbor. You know who you can experience companionship with? Somebody you're envying. Think about the words of, of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, right? Right? The, he, he's reinterpreting the Ten Commandments, right? Don't covet, right? He's like, be content with what you have. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he unfolds all of this for us, right? The Lord will provide for your needs. He is, he is assaulting this envy that creeps into our souls. Why can we not connect with others? Why can't we experience companionship? Are you jealous of what they have? See, if you're always competing with the person next to you, it's going to be really hard to sincerely connect with them, is it not? It's going to be tough. 
Now it exists companionship with people you're competing against. I, um, sometimes, you know how they put microphones on, on professional athletes? It's good and bad, right? <laughs> you get some good stuff, but you get some also pretty not good stuff. But uh, I was aware a few weeks ago, I saw this little clip and it was, um, I forget what teams were playing, but it was a baseball game. And um, the, the runner was on base and the first baseman were standing there. And you would think that these guys hate each other, right? They're enemies, they're mortal enemies. And guess what they're doing? They're like, hey, how's the family? Things going good? Man, a good night to play ball, isn't it? They're, they're enjoying each other's company. It is possible, right, to not envy people that you're competing with. But listen, if competition isn't driving you to excellence, but rather it's driving you to go, I have to push that person down so that I can go up, envy is blocking you from connection with other people. In verse five, Solomon, again, thinking about the workplace, he says, the fool the person who does not know how to live life well folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, most of the time, the fool doesn't actually eat their own flesh right now, but this is, Solomon is saying, a person who is lazy, they're silly, right? They cross their arms. They don't make what they need to make and all that they have to eat is what's right here in front of them, their own flesh. I think this is another barrier that he's showing us to real connection, real relationship, real companionship, laziness. Like goodness, can, can I tell you how many times I'm just going to confess to you as your pastor where it's like, man, I really need, I really want to hang out with my friend, but you know what sounds great? Ice cream and Netflix. Like I just, I just need to not think I need to not talk. I need to not spend energy. What I'm not telling you is that there is not a time, okay, for you to sit down, quiet your soul. There is at least once a week, every day. It's called the Sabbath, okay? But so often is laziness not a barrier to us having actual companionship with other people? Maybe for you, it's not laziness. Maybe it's what verse six reveals. Look, it says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. If laziness is over here, two hands full with a striving after the wind, it's the opposite of laziness. Perhaps we could call it busyness, overwork. If both of your hands are full, guess what you don't have a free hand for? Companionship, connection to God and to others. Have you built a life that is so busy that you don't have any friends? Now listen, you should work hard as unto the Lord. Scripture teaches us that. But if you are so busy, if that's the adjective you use to describe yourself when people ask you how you're doing, you're like, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm busy. That's what comes out of your mouth. If that's the life that you've constructed for yourself and it is blocking you from real connection with other people, you are not walking in God's design. You might be thinking right now, what's the cost? Okay, I've got envy, I've got laziness, I've got busyness, I've got some, some combination of all of those things. Look at Solomon's estimation of this in verse seven and eight. It says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. 
and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity, hevel, and an unhappy business. He says to us, if you get there, wherever there is for you, whatever the goal of your pursuits is, if you get there and you're alone, where did you really go? Re-enters in Ecclesiastes, the proverbial hamster wheel. You're running hard, you're working, you're toiling, but you have nobody to share this with. Guess what it is? He, he tells us the eye is never satisfied with riches. You know what that means? It's a bottomless pit. It never fills up. You can keep dumping stuff in it, right? And isn't that how we spend most of our lives? Just dumping stuff in the, in the pit, trying to numb the lack of genuine companionship we experience in our lives. It is a bottomless pit. So friends, I want us to think carefully this morning in light of God's word. Envy, laziness, busyness, these, these enemies to companionship that, that Solomon reveals to us. Can I ask you, which of these enemies are you calling a friend this morning? Think of this in terms of a real enemy for a moment, right? A flesh and blood enemy. If you knew that somebody wanted to hurt you or hurt your family, are you inviting them over for dinner? Of course not. It would be absurd, wouldn't it? It's like, hey, I know, I know you've got a sword under the table, but come on in. No, what do you do? You bolt the door. You lock it. You turn on the ring doorbell. You call the police. You watch out for that enemy. What's funny is that these enemies that lull us into thinking that they're legitimate arguments, like, man, I don't have time for companionship, or if I'm honest, I don't want to. I'm better off alone. If those are running through your mind in regards to companionship, listen, if what God says is true about companionship that you can't live without it, you're on life support. Don't let these arguments win the day in your mind. Friends, would you say that about chemotherapy? Like if, uh, if you knew you were dying of cancer, would you say, I don't have time this week. I got a lot of other stuff going on. Or man, I really don't want to go. I really want to go do something else. No, you wouldn't say that. Of course, this is life or death. And, and God in the very center of his grand story, it is a story of relationship. It is a story of established relationship in the garden of broken relationship in the fall of restored relationship in the redeeming work of Jesus and an eternal relationship in the restoration we look forward to. This is a story of companionship. You can't live without it. Don't live without it. It's not just a sin. It's a mistake. Those are the enemies. 
but we need fuel. We need fuel to think about why, why give myself to this? And that's what point number three from the text, I think, teaches us, the wisdom of companionship. Let's read verses 9 through 12. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him, warning to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. The famous phrase here, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is Solomon trying to teach us here? Companionship makes sense. Like if you think about it, it's just wise. It's a good way to live in the world with another. But here's the hard part. Here's the barrier that we have to recognize. It's hard because it requires an admission. Every time you pursue companionship, guess what you are verbally or non-verbally communicating? I need help. I need someone outside of myself to be whole, to follow Jesus, to make my way in the world. We need help. It's just true that we need help. And Solomon, again, thematically, he keeps saying, why fight reality? This is a beautiful reality intact from the garden. And Solomon is saying, hey, two are better than one. You know the best way to not freeze to death? To lay with somebody else. You know the best way to not be overcome by adversaries? It's to have a posse. You need a gospel posse. Did you know that? You need some friends, right? You need some people who are shouldered up with you, who will say to you in your suffering, the Lord is with you. And who will say to you in your sin, the Lord rebukes you. <laughs> you need both of those. That's what a companion is. If the people in your life have only ever cheered for you and told you what a special boy or girl you are, that's not a friend. That's a fan. It's a fan. And I'm not saying you should be just, you're, you're looking at your friends trying to see what's wrong so you can come down hard on them. That's not, don't hear what I'm not saying. But real connection requires honesty and closeness. Even in his illustrations, we see that, right? Lifting another fellow up. Something I'm recognizing and having conversations with people both in, in our church and outside of our church, is that there is a collective cultural weariness that everybody's experiencing right now. And there's a lot that contributes to that, certainly. It's like, okay, pandemic, check, that was kind of tough, right? Um, uh, broader cultural conversations about justice, um, all of the wearying that comes from those long, drawn-out, complex conversations. Everybody's weary. How do we withstand weariness? The wisdom of this text is telling us, together, in companionship. Like, goodness gracious, can I tell you how much of my personal unhappiness comes from just being in my own head? 
right? You keep talking to yourself and the loop plays and the soundtrack is better. And pretty soon you are in a spiral and all you were trying to do is decide where to go for lunch. You need a friend, a companion. I was thinking about that this week as Ben and I, we were sitting for, um, for a meal together and a coffee together and, and just thinking about, man, how, how valuable is this moment to my soul to just be with a friend? To, to listen and to be listened to. Y'all, this is life. Solomon's conclusion throughout this book is going to be, there is not much better than having somebody else to share the highs and lows with. It's one of the best things in all of existence. Companionship is wise. But again, still, we find ourselves so often without it. Why? Well, let's look at the end of the text, verses 13 through 16. And I want us to think the last point today, the longing for eternal companionship. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity, hevel, and a striving after the wind." Solomon finishes this teaching on relationships right here with a parable, right? Jesus taught like a wise sage. And so often you will, you will recognize like the way Jesus taught is the way that you see like the wisdom literature teaching us in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and so on. But he gives this proverb and he says, look, there's this young man, he's born poor, but he does well for himself. He goes through life wisely. He makes his way up through the ranks. And as this foolish old king who won't take advice anymore, as he comes out of power, guess what? The young poor man has excelled all the way through until he's standing in the king's place. This is your typical rags to riches story. Think of about 150 romantic comedies you've probably already seen, right? A rags to riches kind of a story. And he says, there's that king standing there and he has all these people. He has all this companionship. There's no end to the people who are surrounding him. He had people that he led, who he did stuff with. That's part of companionship, right? Partnering to do things together, to build something together. And he had people who were in his kingdom, who served him, who loved him, who believed in him. And Solomon said, he got it wisely, He did it well. He had every bit of companionship he could ever long for. And guess what happens at the end? Those who come later will not rejoice in him. What is he saying? Even something as good as companionship, guess what? It's going to come to an end. It's not going to last. It's a bleak thought, isn't it? 
And it's part of the barrier that we face in pursuing companionship. Why do it if it's not going to last? You see, Solomon, he is hitting the ceiling of life under the sun. He longs for relationships to last. Don't you hear that in his voice, right? He's, he's looking at it going, nobody's going to remember him. It doesn't last. It feels like it should. And friend, where Solomon hits the ceiling, what Solomon longs for, you, Christian, have in its fullness. What Solomon finished his life aching for this eternal friendship, companionship, something that would last forever. Guess what? It's yours. It's already yours. It's already credited to you. If you are in Christ, think about this for a moment. The eternal friend of sinners named Jesus, he looks at you and he looks at me and guess what he says? These audacious words from scripture, no longer do I call you servants, but friends? That is embarrassingly dignifying, friends. Do you ever see something in the word and you go, Jesus, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about us like that. Do you know what a mess I am? You know how bad I'm going to be as a companion? I know you're going to be a good companion to me, but I'm sure not going to be a good companion to you. And the friend of sinners again and again and again looks at you, Christian, and says, no longer do I call you servant, but friend. You are brought into the fold, into the eternal family of God. What a friend you have in Jesus. What a friend you have in him. Warren Wearsby, I was reminded this week, says this beautiful thing. He says, the worst, the, or I'm sorry, the worse life gets, the more valuable friends become. Isn't that true? And here's what's hard for us to reckon with. In Jesus' greatest moment of need, as he was approaching the cross, as he was praying in the garden for God to either let the cup pass or to give him the strength to go through it. In that moment when he needed his friends, his companions, more than anything else, what did they do? They bolted. Honestly, guys, we're really bad at being companions a lot of the time. Can I just tell you, I'm I struggle with this. It's hard. And while Jesus was abandoned by his dearest friends and ultimately abandoned by us, by you, it's never so with him. What's that mean? It means he will never abandon you in your greatest moment of need. Like, Lord, I left you. I left you when you needed me most. And like, it's like, what does that have to do with me staying with you? I am your companion. You are my friend. Jesus wants to call you his friend. And friends, someday companionship is going to be unhindered. Scripture tells us that we are reconciled to God and to one another. 
That starts right now, the work of reconciling to one another. But there's a day coming where there is going to be uninterrupted companionship, deep connection of the soul with both God and your friends. You know how when you're with a companion and all this insecurity clouds over your thinking and you're not even present in the conversation because you're so worried about how you're in the conversation, all that's going to go away. You're going to be redeemed and wholly remade and restored in your relationships. Last thing, I'm almost done here, y'all. Where do we go from here? I want us to ask that question together because companionship is not an individual conversation. It's an us conversation. We have to decide if our church is going to be a harbor of companionship or not. It's us. It's not me preaching about companionship. It's us. Are we going to wholly and sincerely commit ourselves to others, starting here and extending past these walls into the city? How do we move toward companionship together? Well, friends, I want to tell you, church membership is a commitment to companionship. It means joining yourselves. College students, let me talk to you for just a minute. It means joining yourself past your age group, past people who are convenient for you to share life with. Like we need the intergenerational messiness. If you've experienced that, you know exactly why you need it. That intergenerational messiness is how you experience the sacrificial love of Christ. How can you become more like Jesus and his love if you only love people who are easy to love? Church membership is a movement toward companionship. And friend, if you are a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to join a healthy gospel-centered church. We like this one, okay? This is a good one. But if it's not this one, join a healthy one, one that's preaching the gospel. Here's the other two more things I want to say. Number, or number two, companionship is contagious. It's contagious. When you begin to experience companionship with Jesus, and then you start to extend it to others, guess what they're going to do? They're going to expand companionship to others because they know what it meant. Can't you think of that person? You're like, man, they befriended me and it changed the way I did relationships forever. Friend, you can be part of somebody's story in that way. And the final thing, friends, if you want this, if you are longing for connection, but you feel stuck, we have done everything that we can to build a path to help make this accessible here. Attending This is the lowest rung of companionship. This is a good moment, right? But it's not like we're really getting in each other's stuff right here, right? We're in rows. Pretty soon you got to move from rows to circles if you want to have a companion. And that's where moving into something like serving, where you begin to shoulder up with somebody else and work toward a common good, you start to grow in companionship. A layer deeper even than that is getting connected to one of our villages that meet all over the city. This is where the circle begins to get even tighter. 
You don't just do something together. You start getting in the spiritual mess of each other's life. And then finally, the tightest circle are what we call D groups around here. Just small, tiny groups of three to five guys or three to five girls who are really invested deeply in each other's lives, who are helping each other obey and follow Jesus. These things are to help you grow in companionship. Because the more you believe that you have companionship with God and with others, that's how we change this city, y'all. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for being our companion. We ask that you will help us with this. I know each of us are wrestling with barriers right now. I pray that you'd knock them down by your grace. Jesus, I give our congregation to you. They belong to you. Father them right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, here at New City, we don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, number one, to reflect what was the Spirit saying to you as you heard God's word taught this morning? Was there a sin to confess, a promise to receive, a truth to believe? Reflect, ask your Father what he wants you to receive this morning. Number two, we remember the companionship of Christ by taking the Lord's Supper. There are two stations here in the front of the room and then two in the back where there's a little cup of juice with a wafer on top. And that symbolically reminds us of the body and blood of Jesus shed. Jesus says, a man has no greater love than this than that he lays down his life for his friends. And when you come to the table today, I want you to remember that the Lord Jesus laid down his life for you, his friends. And then finally, uh, one more thing I should say here. If you're not yet a believer, this is a family meal. And so I'd encourage you to stay in your seat and reflect. How would God have you respond today? Might you become a Christian right now? Say, I want to be friends with you, Jesus. And take the meal for the first time as a follower. And then finally, we rehearse. We rehearse for the day that eternal companionship will be made real by singing together. I want you to be aware as you're singing today, you are not, just, you are not only singing to God in this moment, you are singing truth over your brothers and sisters. This is an act of companionship. I love you, New City. I love being your pastor. Respond when you're ready. <laughs>